That Naturopathic Podcast. TNP. Hello there. Hi, and thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Michelle Pobega, naturopathic doctor. And I'm Dr. David Miller, ND, and we hear your frustrations. This show is for you. This show is for you if you're feeling like your current healthcare strategy is not getting to the root cause or the underlying reasons for your health. This show is for you if you've been told that you're fine, but you definitely don't feel very well. This show is for you if you're walking out of your doctor's office with one, two, three, four, or even five medications without any mention of diet, lifestyle, or a long-term game plan. This show is for you if you've got several specialists taking care of you, but no one is really putting all the pieces together. This show is for you if you believe that health should be part of healthcare. These problems have solutions. We know it. Our patients know it. And we want you to know it. Naturopathic medicine is the solution that you should know about. Okay, welcome to another episode of That Naturopathic Podcast. It's Dr. David Miller, ND here. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be talking to, uh, to a new friend, Ed Cohen. Um, and uh, I'm excited to talk to, to Ed because what we're talking about is, is something that is, uh, we're coming at it from different perspectives, but it's healing. Um, and I'm coming at it from a naturopathic perspective and Ed's, Ed's uh, coming at it from a a different perspective as a as a, a patient and as a an intellectual too. So um, I'm really I'm really looking forward to talking to Ed. So um, just a brief uh, little take here on Ed. Ed's a, the author of On Learning to Heal, or What Medicine Doesn't Know, and the founder of HealingCouncil.com, a therapeutic practice for people living with chronic and life threatening illnesses. He's also a professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Rutgers University. Um, so Ed, um, thank you so much for, for joining us here on the show. Um, maybe you could, maybe you could just, you know, fill in some of the details there of, of your background and, and how we've, you know, we've come to be here and talk about this book and healing. Uh, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be able to chat with you today. Um, Yes, this book is uh, the result of my experience of living with Crohn's disease for more than 50 years. Well, actually 50 years. This is my golden anniversary. Woo! Amazing. Uh, which, uh, yes, uh, considering at the time that I was diagnosed, there wasn't great prognosis uh, for people. I'm every, That's the great thing about having a chronic illness when you're young. It makes getting older a, a boon rather than something to complain about. I'm like, yes, yeah. another year. Uh, <laughs> so, so 50 years ago, what's that put you in? Uh, I guess it puts you in the seventies or, or uh, when in you were 19, diagnosed? 1972. Yes. Okay. I was diagnosed in 1972. And uh, yeah, I was 13 years old and uh, I developed uh, acute uh diarrhea wasting lost you know huge amounts of uh weight uh had all kinds of you know complications um uh, but we were on a cross country trip so i didn't get to get taken to a doctor until uh it was already pretty advanced uh, at which point um because this was the olden days they could you could go to the hospital and for diagnostic testing. Uh, so right. I was in the hospital for, well, it ended up being a couple of months. It took them a while to come up with a diagnosis. Uh, as I like to say, they left no orifice untouched uh, <laughs> in the process. 
Uh, and eventually they came to my room one day and, and said, oh, we know what you got. It's called Crohn's disease and it's an autoimmune illness and we can give you medicines for it. And, you know, I was a smart kid, but I didn't know what autoimmunity was. So mm-hmm. I asked and they said, well, you know, it's like a part of your body is rejecting itself. And that was not super helpful. So I was like, uh, and then they said, well, uh, it's like you're allergic to part of yourself. No, I'm getting, okay, that's, that's still a little vague. Uh, and finally they pulled out the stopper. They said, oh, you're just eating yourself alive. I was like, okay, that I got. But FYI, that is never a good way to describe anything to anyone. Yeah. I mean, that is not a way to explain what's going on. But immediately I was put on massive doses of prednisone, which was at the time the only thing that, that could really be given. None of the current. Yeah, I was going to ask you, is that that was the treatment of choice back then? But uh, Zulfidine too, but I was allergic to sulfur. So right. uh, so I was on, on prednisone for 10 years, between 13 and 23. Uh, I refer to that period of time as my adolescence on steroids. Uh, and, you know, I'm basically, I don't know if, you know, you've had the wonderful experience of being on prednisone for any period of time, but it's like having a pharmaceutically induced mental illness. Um, unfortunately, no one at the time bothered to tell me anything about any of the side effects of this drug. I mean, now you can just go online and look it up and, you know, you find out all the things. But at the time, we had no idea. I, I became huge, you know. Uh, I mean, I still have stretch marks from being, right. a, a, you know, uh, I had like massive mood swings. I was, I mean, it was a mess. Let me just put it that way. And on top of it, it never really worked. I basically was incontinent for 10 years. And, you know, the way it was presented to me was that Crohn's is an incurable disease, There, mm-hmm. which it still is. There are no cures for Crohn's disease, nor for any of the 80 to 100 diseases that are now sometimes classified as autoimmune illnesses. Basically, they can do now what they did then, which is, I, in one recent medical article, referred to it as the sledgehammer of immunosuppression. Uh, and so they have slightly better sledgehammers now, uh, <laughs> the monoclonal antibodies seem to work well and have less side effects, but prednisone did not work that well and had massive amounts of side effects. Um, right. and then, uh, when I was in my twenties, I was in graduate school and I was in a very acute phase and I had a small bowel, <clears throat> uh, um, my small bowel closed off. And I had a perforation, um, but it was undetected. And as a result, I had massive abdominal infections, which included a giant abscess on the blood vessel on the outside of my intestine, which then um, burst. And then I was bleeding. I had a couple of bleeds and then I finally had to bleed out. Um, Fortunately, at the time I was in the hospital. Uh, and I, um, yeah, I had one of those, you know, I, you know, mythological, uh, out of body near death kind of experiences. I didn't go far, far away. And I we had, had a, one. Oh yeah. It was, yeah, yeah it was cool. Uh, I mean, retros- <laughs> retro- retro- retrospectively, yeah. <laughs> no, it was actually good at the time because, you know, considering that 
you know, I had been on prednisone for so long and I was an anxious person and prednisone makes you really anxious. That was one of the ways that I knew something was going on because I felt incredibly calm. And right. I thought, I thought something's going on because I'm not usually such a calm person. Really? And, uh, and yeah, and basically I, I was, you know, uh, I was out of the room, but I could look at the room. I could see everything that was happening to me. Uh, eventually, you know, they were putting in lines everywhere to try to stabilize me. And I was gushing blood out my anus. And uh, eventually they stabilized me enough to rush me to emergency surgery. Uh, I had a small bowel resection. I had parts of my liver taken out, um, other abscesses drained, etc. cetera. Uh, and yeah, and then I was, you know, uh, I woke up in the ICU and I was on massive doses of uh, antibiotics and painkillers. And then something really weird happened. Well, I mean, weird for me, um, which was that while I was recovering, I started going into trances. Um, I, I never had any experience. I mean, I'd taken drugs, you know, but, uh, but I'd never had any experience like this. And my family were like devout atheists. You know, my mother was a, you know, they were Jewish communists. And my father was a Jewish physical chemist. And, you know, matter was all that mattered. I had no idea about anything else. But somehow I could listen to music and, and enter some kind of light place. And I could take the light and then, excuse me, wrap it around, you know, my intestines and, uh, and the parts of my liver that I'm an excise just because I thought it was pain management. I was just like, okay, I'm just, you know, and obviously I was on drugs, so that helped, but, uh, yeah, I'd be really out of it. I mean, like completely out of it. They doctors and nurses at first, would they come into my room and try to wake me and I wouldn't wake up. And then they figured out if they turned on, off the music, I would come out of it. And then after that, everybody just treated it like whatever he's just, you know, in a, in a better place. Uh, but then when I, was finally dismissed from the hospital a couple months later. Um, you know, I had an exit interview with my Stanford doctor, a surgeon, and he said to me something that, you know, it just like seared itself into my brain. He said, you're the sickest person I've operated on in five years. He's still alive. And I have no idea how you got better so quickly. And that completely blew me away, both because on the one hand, it like finally disrupted my denial about how sick I'd been right like, you know I just you know but I was also like whoa you don't know like you're a doctor you're telling me you don't know what just happened to me that was really uh so that was the sort of uh catalyst for my uh for my healing journey um in a, in a certain way and that's like where the the impulse impetus for my book comes from but there was also something else that happened to me when I was in the hospital because I was in graduate school at the time and you know I was in the hospital for many months and so I was you know doing some work because I was not able to go to classes and I was doing a directed reading on a French philosopher who is my favorite thinker Michel Foucault and he wrote a, an amazing book called Birth of the Clinic <clears throat> that is about the genealogy of Western medical practice, um, and, and in particular clinical medicine. Like what, what happens when people go into hospitals, what happens when hospitals become teaching locations. And, and one of the things that 
you know, I learned from reading that book, just, I mean, of course, it hadn't ever really struck me this way before, but that the the ways that medicine would the ways that medicine had addressed me and the ways that I had addressed medicine were a historical artifact. Like they were the effect of the ways in which certain kinds of knowledge about what it means to be a living being were developed in the late 18th and early 19th centuries and began at that point to move medicine away from what it had been for 2000 years, which was an endeavor to support and encourage the natural power of healing. Um, in, in Galenic medicine, that was called like the vis meditrix naturae, the natural power of healing. And, and what doctors could do is try to support and encourage that as best as they could <clears throat> in the course of, and, and that was considered an art, like to be able to do that. In the yeah, course that's of the, the first precept of naturopathic doctor too. And that's the that exact thing. That, yeah. And that is, I mean, medicine as we know it, uh, I mean, medicine what we call medicine. I mean, because there's lots of healing modalities. And yeah. Every every culture has its own way of uh, own therapeutic practices. Um, medicine as such um, emerged uh, in the fourth, fifth, fourth century BCE in, um, in Greece. And the thing that made medicine medicine as distinct from, you know, uh, shaman prophets or you know herbalists or you know different kinds of traditional i mean at the time there was a, a actually a, a god of healing asclepius who had temples that people would go to for healing experiences the the thing that distinguished medicine from those other practices was that medicine defined its main only resource as knowledge like knowledge of the, of natural processes was what medicine sought to account for and through accounting for it uh, to perhaps be able to influence the course of illness. So that's why the two main techniques that were developed that made medicine medicine are called diagnosis, mm -hmm. which means by way of knowledge hmm. and prognosis, which means knowing in advance. Those two things remain the hallmarks of medicine mm -hmm. to 2,500 years later. Mm -hmm. Medicine is a knowledge enterprise. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, and medicine has always invested in its capacity to know, literally invested, you know, you know, both in terms of its, uh, its therapeutic capacities, but medicine in terms of fee-for-service, medicine in terms of prestige. Their, medicine has been highly invested um, with this knowing attribute. And, and conversely, we as patients approach doctors as people who are supposed to know. Mm -hmm. They're supposed to know something about what's happening to us that we don't. Mm -hmm. And we hope that what they know will affect the course of our experience. Right. Um, so reading this book by Foucault in the hospital and realizing, whoa, this particular way that I have taken for granted as being not just the best, but the only approach to modulating the symptoms of this condition that I have been living with 
might not be the only way might be a historically specific way might have many many resources that i'm super grateful for and you know i'm very upfront but i'd be dead without it i'm like i'm not a naysayer but it's just really interesting to me that medicine as we know it now as it's developed in the 20th century as it's tied to a notion of bioscience that's rooted in a kind of literally reductionist paradigm and i don't mean that in a pejorative way i mean that in a epistemological way i mean biomedicine is reductive in the sense that it assumes that all of the the physical processes that happen in a living organism can be accounted for in terms of physics chemistry and and biology mm -hmm. at some level mm -hmm. um and uh and having lived with uh, chronic illness for over 50 years, it did occur to me that while those might be sufficient conditions, they may not, or let me put those might be, I did that wrong. While those might be necessary conditions, they may not be sufficient conditions. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. So, you know, so my book on learning to heal or what medicine doesn't know, I mean, it arises, it arose out of that constellation, a phenomenon out of my personal experience, but also out of my intellectual experience of, you know, the, the questioning part of me, you know, the annoying little three-year-old who's going, <laughs> why, why, why? You know, once I realized that, that the things that I was being told were not only necessary, but then, you know, as I began to investigate it more, were highly... Um, uh, what's the word I want to use? I'm, the word that's coming to mind is suspect, but uh, it, we're, 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 we're not robust. They were not robust right. explanations. Right. I mean, <clears throat> I wrote the, the book that I wrote before this, which is called A Body Worth Defending, Immunity, Biopolitics, and the Apotheosis of the Modern Body is about how the notion of immunity went from being a legal and political concept for 2,500 years to becoming a biomedical concept at the end of the 19th century and how that completely changed our understandings of not just health and illness, but also what it means to be an organism living among other organisms of different scales, what it means to be a human living among other humans. Um, and, you know, and one of the things that, you know, I learned about in the course of that is that there are five persistent uh, problems in immunological theory that immunity uh, immunology or the immune paradigm that developed in the course of the 20th century which mcfarland burnett uh characterizes the science of self non-self discrimination that there are five five conditions that persist that cannot be explained in these terms autoimmunity is one because autoimmunity in the immune paradigm suggests that the self mistakes parts of itself as being other, mm -hmm. right? As being not self. And that's a logical contradiction. How can self be not self? That's mm -hmm. like, so, and, and not coincidentally, there are increasing numbers of conditions that are defined as being autoimmune. And as I said earlier, but none of them for, there are no cures for any of them. 
and all any of them can be the ways that all of them are treated is through uh, symptom management and immunosuppression. So autoimmunity, cancer, that's another major pregnancy. It's uh, an interesting case too. Yeah. And um, host, host versus graft disease mm -hmm. and commensal bacteria. Mm -hmm. Those are five documentable, empirically known places that immune theory breaks down. But, you know, the the investment in the theory is so great that it's very difficult to move beyond that. You, know, you mean within, as if the theory is just like a binary uh, self or other with no sort of like um, uh, like a slider <laughs> between the two? Well, both that and I mean, I, I, you know, so the way that medicine becomes modern, the way that it begins to move away from Hippocratic Galenic precepts so, so to the backstory, the Hippocratic and Galenic precepts uh, were basically humoral medicine, which is, the idea was that uh, there are five, there are four elements: earth, water, fire, air. There are four qualities: hot, cold, wet, dry. Uh, the elements are modulated by the qualities to produce the humors. So there's uh, black bile, yellow bile, blood, and phlegm, and that what we are is, as living beings are balances and imbalances among these humors but though but because the humors are composed of elements it was an environmental theory as well there was no distinction between the organism and the environment it was well understood that you know if you lived in a dry environment there were certain things that happened if you yeah. lived you know in a uh, you know on a marsh yeah. or saying you know, like that that was part and you know astrology was too i mean but the idea was that organisms always are in context they're always in a world that mm -hmm. and there's no you know uh you know there's no border wall between the organism and and the environment <clears throat> that changed radically in uh, the middle of the 19th century, this man named Claude Bernard, who was like one of the giants of 19th century um, uh, physiology of bioscience, invented uh, um, an artifact basically, uh, which is called <clears throat> the milieu interior. And what he said was that the real theater, that was his phrase, of the living organism occurs in the inner environment which is that which is contained by the skin and the exterior environment can be bracketed for the purposes of experimentation in order to understand how it is that living organisms, uh, the processes through which living, through which organisms live. Well, you know, that has produced, and in all contemporary bioscience, anything done in a laboratory to an animal is based on that precept. That precept was a radical break with uh, Hippocratic and Galenic medicine. He was the first person to suggest that medicine should develop what he called arms and weapons against disease. Like in an environmental paradigm, that made no sense. But, and he was, uh, he wasn't just a, a big scientist. He was a huge political figure. He was friends with the French emperor. He got he, he got financed to set up labs. He started big, you know, education projects to educate 
future people. He was the mentor of Louis Pasteur, right? So this particular paradigm of the milieu interior is every everybody who's trained in Western medical science is trained based on this supposition that you can, for the purposes of experimentation and for the purposes of treatment, unfortunately, which are not the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. That the organism can be uh, conceptually torn from its environment and mm -hmm. treated as if it were uh, a, a closed system, because that's that's the problem. To do scientific experimentation, you need a closed system. Yes, but living organisms aren't closed by definition. Mm -hmm. That's what that's what keeps us alive. Yeah, I mean, so so medicine, you know, as it developed, and and it also developed in relationship to a certain kind of epistemology that wants things to be cut and dried. Like, you know, we now call it, you know, evidence-based medicine. But the the problem with, and you, the thing, you know, wanting things to be cut and dried is only dead things are cut and dried. <laughs> like the way in which, you know, medical students are trained on cadavers, you can learn a huge amount from a dead body mm -hmm. about pathology. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not, but you learn, you can learn nothing about healing. Mm -hmm. right because mm -hmm. healing is a process of the living it's a tendency within living organisms when the organism is not alive it does not tend to heal there is no <laughs> way of tracking it and that's part of the problem <clears throat> you know for why why you know my question is why did healing which we all know about <clears throat> we all rely on all the time you know, we all know that if we cut our finger, we don't like go, oh, I'm consciously like, you know, directing all of the, you know, <laughs> cells, and, you know, no, I mean, or, or even we in more dramatic instances, like <clears throat> medicine relies on it, for example, like in oncology, like what are the treatments that, that we have for cancer? Basically, you can be poisoned, you can be slashed, you can be burned. Right. They can give you chemotherapy, mm -hmm. they can you know, do surgery, or they can radiate you. All of these are incredibly assaultive to the organism. But the reason that they do it, it and they're willing to do it is because they assume that there is some capacity to heal from those assaults. Yeah, you don't now, hear that very often, though. No. And they, yeah. and they, they don't really care much about how you do that. Yeah. <laughs> like I know someone who had one of those, you know, uh, they ablated her immune system and then she had a stem cell transplant and, you know, the whole thing. And unfortunately it didn't work and she recently died, but <clears throat> they just sent her home. <clears throat> they didn't like, like there was no like, okay, what can you do? <laughs> to, yeah. Like, sure. Uh, what can, like, that's, it's just, and this is, uh, I mean, not to, you know, I'm, again, I don't want to disrespect medicine because I'm very dependent on it. But they weren't interested. And to me, that's the problem is like, it's not that people who become doctors or, you know, enter into the, you know, clinical professions uh, aren't drawn to it by their caring about healing. It is that the training that they receive uh, tells them that what is interesting are a certain set a phenomenon and all others are bracketed as yeah. you know not uh not important not worth considering now you know of course that can't be a, a 
you know, that that's that divide is increasingly tenuous. So you get things like uh, complementary cancer care, where you go. So what's the complementary part? You know, that's the mm -hmm. that's the part that medicine isn't interested. But but they but they recognize. Oh, but it does affect outcomes. So okay, we can or like another one of my favorites, alternative medicine, like alternative to what? And why does medicine need an alternative? You know. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, you know, what my work in, you know, what on learning to heal or what medicine doesn't know, I mean, the reason that it says what medicine doesn't know, you know, as the subtitle is that there is so much that medicine knows I'm, and I'm so grateful for it, but there's so much that medicine doesn't know. It's not interested in, and, 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 and oftentimes because it's not interested in it, it, it rejects the significance of it. I mean, many, many doctors, people have experienced uh, things like that happened to me or people who have spontaneous remissions from cancer, for example. I mean, these are documented there, but they are dismissed as being what's called anecdotal. Um, and what anecdotal means is this is a kind of data that we're not interested in. It deviates Why? from the mean. <laughs> it does. Exactly. Exactly. It's not, it, it, it ruins the curve. And, <laughs> and we can, and, and it defies the, the precepts of diagnosis and prognosis. We can't mm -hmm. predict it. Mm -hmm. Right. And our, and our models of predicate, uh, prediction are predicated on statistical analyses. So, so that has to do with, yes, the, and that goes back to the origins of clinical medicine. The development of the clinic is where the notion of statistical correlation between certain kinds of symptom manifestation and then lesions that were discovered on autopsies was first invented. And that was exactly at the same time in history that statistical methods in mathematics were being invented. And those two things came together um, because hospitals had large populations of people, uh, and mostly very, very poor people, that they could just heard through, see what happened, they die, cut them open, you know, because that was basically the way poor people paid for their hospitalization was by allowing their corpses to be used at, for scientific uh, autopsies. Um, so yeah, oh. so healing, you know, healing experiences mess up the curve. Uh, and, you know, and so that's why, you know, like on Medline, which is, you know, the U.S. Library of Medicine's, you know, big database of, you know, when you look up healing, what you see is um, uh, fracture healing, uh, wound healing, faith, fracture healing, faith healing, wound healing, and mental healing. Those are the four categories. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> but nothing about healing is a general phenomenon. You know, not, doctors are not trained to look to look for healing, to support it, you know, and, and they're certainly not trained because their training is really very, very, uh, I'm going to say unhealing uh, in terms of the way, you know, the being on call for 72 mm -hmm. hours or, you know, I mean, that, you know, it's it's sort of it, the, the preceptive healing is sort of antithetical, unfortunately, to the ways in which physicians are trained in the current world it 
is it even like pragmatic though ed because like i'm i'm a um i'm a tr troubleshooter or devil's advocate so i'm gonna say to you how how could it even be uh i know doc i know doctors and i know i have friends who are and and have gone through it and it's like like, like some of the things they i mean it's intensive training how could they it's almost like it seems like too much like this a lot of what you're talking about is um yes the I mean, forgive me, like clarify if any of this is is not like being digested properly, but it's not like we're saying there's anything wrong with it. It's more that when you look directly at one thing, you're you don't see anything behind you. And and when you're hyper focused on this deterministic sort of uh, way of looking at medicine, you miss so much healing. How could doctors get the training that they get? Because they need to get that kind of training, too. Um, but how could they get how like? Let's let's be real here. How could a doctor even understand healing when they spend uh, what is it like ten years learning all this deterministic stuff, which is which is valuable, especially in emergent care and and that sort of thing. So, what do you think of that? Well, so here's the counterexample. One of my my best teachers, great teachers, is an amazing person named Rachel Remen, who has written to, you know, internationally best-selling books, Kitchen Table Wisdom, and bless, My Grandfather's Blessings. She was trained as a, a, a pediatric endocrinologist. She worked at Stanford University Hospital, and she also had Crohn's disease. And at the point where they offered her the directorship of pediatrics at Stanford, uh, she quit. And she started a practice with people with chronic and life-threatening illnesses. So that's how I got to her. And as she calls herself, a recovering doctor. So, uh, mm -hmm. and she then, uh, she and Michael Lerner started Commonweal, which is a comprehensive cancer care center in Bolinas, California. There's a very good Bill Moyer special called Healing in the Mind that's about that. Um, center. And from there, she went on, uh, she is a clinical professor at UCSF Medical School. And she started a course for first year medical students called the Healer's Art. And it's now taught in like, I don't know, a lot of 80 to 100, I don't know the numbers, a lot of medical schools for first year medical students, because so many students come with a vocation. Like they, they are drawn to medicine, not because they want to know the minutia of, you know, biochemical and biophysical processes. You know, they're, they're drawn to medicine because that should be a means by which mm -hmm. they can support and encourage other the, the power of healing in others. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's it, the like, I mean, pragmatically, like at this historical moment, I mean, I'm Rachel's, you know, intervention is you know, an important one or the development of what now it's called narrative medicine. So Rita Charon at Columbia University has started a big narrative medicine program to help people in clinical professions understand why the imagination, why storytelling is so important for not, you know, for, for figuring out how to diagnose people, for understanding what the factors that are in play. I mean, so there, I mean, there are things that are being done actually to expand the focus. Um, but you're right, it's it's a deep systematic phenomenon. It's something that um, since the 1920s in the United States, uh, medical training 
before the 1920s in the US, uh, medical training was, was heterodox. There were many, many different kinds of medical schools. Uh, most of them were uh, private little schools. There were some universe, big university ones, Harvard, UPenn, uh, Johns Hopkins. Um, but uh, in, early in the 20th century, uh, Abraham Flexner, who was not a doctor nor a scientist, wrote a big report for, um, uh, I'm just forgetting, the, is it the Guggenheim? One of the foundations, uh, Carnegie, I don't know, one of the foundations, I'm just blanking on which one, Carnegie Mellon, I think, Carnegie Foundation, yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> and, and basically did an evaluation uh, you know, of all medical education. And basically he was the person who insisted that all credible qualified medical training must be based on, uh, on bioscientific reductionism. And he, cre he, he stressed the difference between scientific medicine and medicine that focused on the art of, uh, of healing. Mm -hmm. um, that, uh, Report then was, had a preface by the chair of the Carnegie Institute, um, and you know they, uh, who and and his point was not only was this report meant to address the actual training of physicians in North America, but it was meant to educate the public to believe that this was this training was the basis of the best medical care they could receive. So it was a, mm -hmm. a double kind of pedagogical imperative. And it was highly, highly successful because they were giving out a lot of money to medical schools. And within a very short period of time, like African-American medical schools were shut down, uh, alternative, you know, most all heterodox, you know, forms. I mean, osteopathy is one of the few that like kind of, hung in there. Thank you know? God for that. <laughs> Honestly. So, but you're right. In the course of the 20th century, between these kind of, uh, you know, epistemological and technological scientific advances, but also then, you know, the funding mechanisms, you know, for how medicine, you know, uh, gets practiced, you know, have become so entangled in particular ways that, you know, those of us who rely on, on Western medical care or, you know, whatever we want to call it, allopathic or, you know, however you want to frame it. I mean, we do know, like when we're in the hospital or when we go to the doctor, like that there could be more, mm -hmm. and, but you're right. The, the social, historical, economic, political conditions uh, you know, really limit that. And that's why, you know, one of the points in my book on learning to heal or what medicine doesn't know uh, is that healing's not just, I'm not referring to healing just as a biological process. Mm -hmm. I'm also saying healing, healing is certainly, it's a biological tendency. It doesn't, you know, it's, it, if it's supported and encouraged, then that has a better chance of working. But it's also psychological. It's also sociological, political, economic, you know, uh, it could be spiritual. And at this point, let's face it, the planet needs some healing, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that all of the paradigms that we have that are, are so focused on the idea of, you know, to be a person means to be an individual and that as an individual, we're somehow in a like spacesuit, you know, like separated from the world. Uh, I think that's a really 
very, that's just a mistake, right? I think one of the things that, you know, COVID demonstrates really clearly is that, you know, the idea that we're individuals and fundamentally separated from each other is just biologically counterfactual. Yeah. Right. You know, the word contagion, it literally contagion means touching together. Mm -hmm. Like that there can be an epidemic, that it can be a pandemic, Mm -hmm. you know, simply demonstrates to us something that is true every single day, but we don't pay attention to it Mm -hmm. (laughs) is that we're all entangled with each other. And that entanglement is not just, you know, viruses and, uh, and, you know, uh, multi-celled, you know, organisms. It's like by way of trade routes and by way of planes and by way of the economics that outsources, you know, production from one continent to another. And I mean, that, you know, the, these phenomenon that we're confronted with, if we look at them, do show us that the ways that we historically make sense of the world and make sense of ourselves in the world have certain kinds of limits that, you know, have had very productive effects on the one hand, but also may have deleterious side effects as well. I mean, when people started using fossil fuels to power uh, you know, industrial production, nobody knew that there was going to be global warming. Exactly. Exactly. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Ed, what about the idea that it's, it sounds like a lot of problems here is that we have a lot of binary type thinking, this or that. And, yes. and, and so there's, I, I, you know, I, I don't think there's any problem with looking at biochemistry. It's great. I use it as a way of practice, but I don't look at it without the context of the patient beside me. It's pretty useless. Well, not entirely useless, but it's a hell of a lot more useful in the context of who's sitting beside me in this chair here and telling me their story. And and then I do a physical exam. Like it's, it's kind of like um, this or that thinking seems to be problematic is, can you, you know, cause you're, you're the intellectual here. Can you, can you talk a little <laughs> here? It's yours. It's yours. Take it. No, do you know what I mean? like, yeah, yeah, no. So I'll give you an example and then I'll give you the theory. So my dad had a massive stroke a number of years ago and ended up in the ICU. I mean, he was someone who was like, you know, all about death with dignity and, you know, had every kind of, uh, you know, DNR. And and literally my brothers and I were told, uh, just shoot me. That was like our imperative, right? But once you get into the ICU, you can't, you can't die. The only way out of the ICU is you die or you get better. You can't, there's no DNR in the ICU. Mm. Um, so uh, so he was, in, and if you've ever been in an ICU, because he had neurological and, you know, heart things going on, they would wake him up <clears throat> every hour to see if he was, well, That that's how you induce psychosis. I mean, and they know that it's called ICU psychosis. And it's the same torture technique that they used in Guantanamo. It's a, it's, you know, so he was not in good shape. I mean, he looked horrible. He was horrible. He was, and I'm sitting in the room with him. And one day the, this guy, this doctor comes in and he introduces himself. He says, hello, I'm the intensivist. And I'm like, hello. I, I actually, I said to him, hi, I'm an intensivist as well. And, uh, and I'm like, I'm a Scorpio. What do you want? But, uh, <laughs> 
but then he's like, and then he's like, he doesn't look at my father. He's like looking at the num, and he's like looking at the numbers. Uh, well, it's actually on a yeah. computer thing. And he's like, oh, it looks like he's doing better today. And I said to him, look at him. Right. Just look, look at right. him. Right. I mean, he is not doing better, right? Yeah. This is not, and, you know, so there, so, you know, the numbers are real. I, like, I, I want to keep stressing. I am so, I feel so blessed and so lucky to have had the resources to be able to have treatment. I mean, I was in Stanford hospital, one of the best hospitals in the world. I am. And I was in like the VIP section for some, well, I can explain the reason, but, <laughs> but I mean, so it was, you know, high quality. It was bad. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, exactly. But, but the thing is, you're right. It's uh, the, the, and it goes back to what I was saying about, you know, Claude Bernard, there's a bracketing that goes on. Um, there's a binary that's set up that everything inside that we can, you know, analyze according to you know, statistical parameters, that's where we can focus. And everything else, uh, we're just going to set aside. And, and that's why, and as if it were uninteresting, it's not uninteresting, but for our purposes, yeah, it's uninteresting. And and that's the you know and that's the gambit that's the the conceptual gambit that medicine is predicated on for our purposes uh, that we produce these bifurcations and you're right I mean the that that kind of splitting that kind of dividing that kind of deciding I mean first of all it's a it's a violent act like you know, bifurcations, decisions, the word decision literally means to cut from, right? It's a form of cutting. And when you decide that you're only going to look at this and not that, right? You're making an intervention that splits the field of possibility mm -hmm. that you are engaging with. And, and, and basically that is the point of my book, uh, you know, I say, you know, on learning to heal. I mean, the reason it's called on learning to heal is like, because I'm trying to say healing is always learning. Like we have mm -hmm. to, it, you know, we're learning is always involved. And that's one of the things that like when we go to the doctor, you know, and that's what medicine doesn't know, you know, it's like, we're not, they're, they're not helping us to learn a different way of being. They're trying at best to cure us, mm -hmm. right? And cure and cure means to negate the, I mean, in the way that they use it, cure means to negate the existence of the thing that is presenting, like what's considered your presenting problem, right? And my experience of living with a, a chronic, serious, sometimes acute, you know, autoimmune illness for 50 years is that uh, that, that is an insufficient way of making sense of very complicated processes, right? Mm -hmm. That, mm -hmm. you know, even if you can be cured, whatever that means, uh, you still went through an experience. Mm -hmm. And that experience makes a difference. Mm -hmm. It made you different. You are different by virtue of having gone through the experience of illness and perhaps being cured, right? Mm -hmm. But our idea of cure is like, oh, let me return to what I did before. Like, let right. me just go back to, and let me say this with COVID, right? Everybody's like, let's just go back to normal. Or we're like, what's the new, we're tired of this. You know, let's, let's, we want it, we want it to go away. It's like, okay, 
let's stop and think about what it means to be a living organism, living yeah. with other organisms. That's that's the condition of possibility of going on living. Mm-hmm. Right? And individually, some of us might do that better than others, but collectively, we're not doing such a great job right now. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> um and, you know, so that the basic bifurcation that I would say that is a problem that underwrites not just medical discourse, but political discourse and economic discourse, right, is that as living beings that we are fundamentally separated from the environment. Like mm. that as a presumption of what it means to be a human being is A, empirically wrong, and B, at this point, Politically, economically, environmentally, it's pathological. Mm-hmm. I mean, I it developed at a certain moment in time as a way of thinking that was about moving from, uh, you know, religiously ordained uh, monarchical systems to another model that we call liberal governance, which is predicated on a. a a theoretical assumption, which is that to be a person means to have a body. That's that's where it all began. And and that's a, I mean, I it was very important. It's the basis of all of what we call rights. Um, you know, but it wasn't a biological observation, right? It was a it was a political observation. Um, and, and it wasn't just a political observation, it was a political claim uh to, and it was the basis of creating a whole new legal system, a whole new economic system, you know, that, you know, that, that to be a person means to have a body is what underwrites uh, wage labor, right? Because you are the owner of your body and it's your property and you can alienate it for a period of time in exchange for remuneration from someone else. So it's very different than feudalism. It was a, it was a very important concept, but it had no impact in terms of like medical thinking at the time, medical thinking was still humoral and organisms were still in environments. That was mm-hmm. their basic condition of going on living. The, these two things, you know, these two ways of thinking about what it means to be alive through the course of the last 250 years have come together and become entangled in very specific ways that would the effects of which now we have concatenations of them, you know? pandemics of of novel viruses that may be zoonotic you know are are one example but there there's so many examples uh you know i mean Ed, you're gonna what... have to you're gonna have to talk to dave nelson from planetary <laughs> health no it it sounds like a, a yeah like you're, you're some of the stuff you're saying sounds a lot like the big picture stuff dave nelson from the planetary health um so movement or organization is talking about it's it's really interesting that you're you're moving towards that kind of discussion um well i want to i want to just make sure we clarify for our listeners like what doesn't medicine i know we've talked about it in sort of like a big a big sort of uh perspective but what really doesn't medicine know uh a lot (laughs) (laughs) well read the the book (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes read my book on learning to heal or what medicine doesn't know but why um, do, why is it a main point that we need to bring up uh because the because the way that we approach physicians and we approach medicine in general is as those who are supposed to know 
Yeah. Right. And so just at a really pragmatic, like for individuals going through their lives, right. That to be able to like reframe our desire, right. To have an understanding of, yes, there are things medicine does know, but there are many things that medicine does not mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. Right. And we, we, you know, and we also need to be able to reflect on the things that medicine tells us. When my doctors told me you're allergic to yourself, you're rejecting yourself, you're eating yourself alive, right? Mm -hmm. Those were, those were bad ways of telling me yep. uh, about what was happening to me. And as a 13 year old, that was really, that screwed me up for a, a really, really long time. You know, doctors try their best. They, you know, you know, but when there are complicated conditions, when there are conditions that are hard to diagnose, right? Like, so people go to physicians wanting a diagnosis, even if there's no treatment, they, they want to, to know what's happening to them. And, you know, and, and good, you know, and, and many doctors, most doctors will, you know, confront, be confronted with conditions where they don't know, and then they refer. Yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, okay, you, I don't know, but my colleague, yeah, blah, yeah. blah, well, like, you know, and it's, and the referrals are always to usually, not always, usually to more and more subspecialties, right? Like, mm -hmm. oh, okay, I need someone who's like this, you know, and then, and then you get to the specialist, like maybe you get a diagnosis and then you get the, the one specialist who does this plus that. And, and especially because I'm interested in autoimmune conditions, right? So, autoimmune conditions are very complicated. They can have multiple sets of symptomologies. It's very, very common for people who are ultimately diagnosed with autoimmune illnesses to go many, many years without receiving a concrete diagnosis. And so, you know, it's helpful to, I think, for people in general to know that medicine doesn't always know. Yeah. Like in terms of like, what expectations do we bring? And also to entertain the possibility that there are things that we actually know about our own experience that, mm. that, that we, you know, what I always say to people is like, if we heal, we are the ones doing the healing, right? Like the beginning of my book, I talk about the beginnings of the COVID epidemic and, you know, uh, and, you know, all, you know, what we remember, which is rightly so, is like the heroic efforts of, of healthcare professionals and frontline workers and, you know, all, you know, to, to help, you know, people who are <clears throat> acutely ill to stay alive and, you know, people in life support and all of that is so, you know, praiseworthy. Like that was a, an amazing effort and be that as it may, Every single person who had COVID and survived got better because they have a, a tendency to heal. Mm -hmm. What medicine can do is support and encourage that capacity. That's why we call it life support, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but the life is the part of you. Of well, it's a, life. Life is the. Uh, the quality of our existence on the planet, you know, like life is a fundamental force for us. Um, and I think we don't, you know, appreciate that enough. And that if there was just 
I mean, even like a simple thing, the more we appreciate that capacity and possibility that we can then develop ways of encouraging it for ourselves and not just in, in conditions, you know, when we are acutely ill, but in an ongoing basis, because, mm -hmm. and that's, you know, that's one of the things about learning to heal is that we're always learning to heal insofar mm -hmm. as we're going on living. And for some people, my father was one, other friends of mine, sometimes dying actually is a form of healing. Um, I mean, and that's another binary, like life, death, mm -hmm. that medicine is not just medicine, but many of us are deeply invested in. But, you know, that may not be the best way to think about the relationship between living and dying. I mean, as we know, you know, uh, apoptosis, like without cell, all constant cell death <laughs> all the time, we would be dead. And that's what and cancer is <laughs> precisely mm -hmm. the failure of certain cells to die or to be killed, you know, to be killed by, you know, immune means or I mean this is, this mm. is the current way of talking about it um so you know so the I think that just as a um, as an ethic right just as a personal ethic you know leaving aside like the political and the the biological and the like that healing as an ethic to me suggests an orientation about being in the world that uh that holds that uh as living organisms we always have the capacity to affect the quality of how we live in the conditions in which we live right that mm -hmm. that you know it is something that seems that human beings have developed and have a capability of we develop technologies like medicine to 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 further that to provide us with resources for that but in general that is um those are manifestations of a larger value um which is that we can not we you know we we don't always do it we don't have necessarily always have resources we're not supported it's like there's obstacles but but you know, given a bit of support and encouragement, <clears throat> we can uh, affect the quality of our lives in the conditions in which we live. Them sometimes that means changing the conditions in which we live. Mm -hmm. right? Sometimes that you know, at really pragmatic levels, it could mean you know changing your diet. You know, which is what historically diet, which meant not what we just think of like going on a diet, but it originally meant actually your whole life style i mean diet pharmacology or what, what ph oh, yeah pharmacon and surgery those were like the only those were the three areas of medicine for thousands of years um, and diet was the most important mm -hmm. right so you know like to at a personal level at a interpersonal level like how do we support and encourage each other in, in a healing way like i think that that might i it's a possibility. Like I'm just at this point, I feel like I'm planting seeds and I'm like, and this is something that um, the, the philosopher that I mentioned before, Michel Foucault, he talks about what he calls the insurrection of subjugated knowledges. 
all right, the insurrection of subjugated knowledges. And I think healing is the subjugated knowledge. Like healing was a profound central concept for, for more than 2000 years. And only in the course of the last, I'm gonna say a hundred years, has it been displaced from its central role in not just in medicine, but in the social context of medicine. And it's been subjugated, you know, by, what? oh, sorry. Well, yeah, what is it, Ed? I mean, it's a perfect opportunity for me to ask you, what to you is healing? I believe the word origin etymology, which sounds like you're on top of your etymology, means to make whole. Um, and so what is healing to you just before you go down, you know, the subjugation of it? <laughs> what is it? Uh, well, that's, um, so I think of healing as a tendency um, and as a value. I think uh, that it's a, uh, um, <clears throat> as living organisms, generally the way that biology, you know, considers the, um, what are the conditions of possibility for being a living organism? Well, organisms have to be bounded, right? They have to have a membrane. The, the membrane has to be permeable. Things have to be able to come in from the outside and be able, toxins have to be able to be released. The organism has to be able to reproduce itself or the cell, I mean, like we're talking about bacteria, even cells have to be able to reproduce. And ultimately they have to be able to repair. There's a, that that's a condition of possibility of what we understand a living organism to be. I think <clears throat> healing, is the tendency that's manifest in the reparative capacity of all kinds of different living beings. And mm -hmm. it and it manifests itself at biochemical, you know, biophysical levels in different ways in different organisms. Mm -hmm. Right. That's why, but but there seems to be in the same way that there's a tendency towards <clears throat> reproduction, there seems to be a tendency you know, towards healing that underwrites, um, uh, that underwrites our, our capacity to go on living, right? And so I think that when I'm using healing, I'm using it, you know, very abstractly in that regard, not in terms of like the specific mechanics of it, um, <clears throat> but really the more general, uh, possibility that it speaks to and 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 I say it's a tendency and I say it's a value and then what I mean by value is that it's of significance to the organism right mm -hmm. like healing always matters like the last chapter of my uh, book is called healing matters like healing matters to the organism it's both a material process it is about the way that matter is transformed, but it matters <clears throat> as a value for the organism insofar as the organism intent, you know, tends to go on living. Right. Mm. So, so that's, so that's what I mean by healing is it's, uh, is that it's a, <clears throat> it's a tendency and a value that, uh, that underlies the capacity of all living beings to go on living. Mm -hmm. um, does that make sense? Yeah. To me. Yep. <laughs> So, so that is what I'm saying uh, is, was uh, subjugated in the sense, in part because of what we were saying before, because it's, it's very hard to quantify and it's, it's hard to sell, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Absolutely. Like I, I I think sometimes like sometimes uh, extreme comparisons are helpful. Like I think if we could only have, you know, naturopaths like me or medical doctors, I'd be like, well, definitely I want the medical doctors because when things are really, really bad, um, you need that. And then, and then, so that's not like to, uh, I'm not uh, trying to uh, speak, speak disparagingly about my profession. Um, But you know, there is a real core need of it. I, I feel like, you know, what about the situation? This is a good question to ask you. Like, what about the situation where, yes, we have medical doctors, but they're able to gracefully and knowingly with some form of wisdom, hand off um, some of the, not even hand off is not, to know the limitations, I guess, of what they're doing, I guess would be like a, a, a nice, a good start. Absolutely. <clears throat> I mean, that that's, so I'm, <clears throat> I'm hundred percent behind the yeah, the idea of uh, the kind of medicine, Western medicine, allopathic medicine, whatever you want to call it. Um, in terms of acute care, like hey, go like yeah, if you're sign in, me up. Yeah, I mean, like I'm so there, and and I think that and it's ironic but interesting that the closer you are to death. The better medicine. I said the exact be. same thing this week. Oh my! I said the exact same thing this week to a patient. I felt weird saying it because I didn't want to. Like you, I'm not trying to insult anyone, but that I said those exact words this week. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it makes sense because if the corpse is what you practice on, <laughs> <laughs> the closer you are to being a corpse, the more familiar you are to like. I mean, that's the weird thing about it. I mean, it's like you know, life support. I mean, having been on it is like, it's amazing. I mean, it's crazy, you know, it's, but, you know, uh, but uh, yeah, so, but the, what, and you know, what we know so much less about is like what we call chronic conditions. And that's, you know, I'm, I'm the spokesmodel for that. You know, I have 50 years, you know, of chronicity uh, and yeah, no. Um, and, and, those are conditions that you know medicine as we know it uh has much more limited range of options and you know that's what what's interesting to me is like you know when medicine first uh was invented as medicine and i think i mentioned this earlier there was a, a exactly the same time a different kind of practice of healing which was Asclepian temple healing. There were these temples to Asclepius, um, and and Hippocratic medicine and Asclepian temple medicine historically coexisted for over a thousand years. And Hippocratic doctors, when they knew that they couldn't do anything, they sent people to the temple. They're like, go up the hill, you know, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And I mean, an Asclepian temple healing is really interesting because it was predicated on what's called dream incubation. Like people would go into a dormitory, all, all everybody who'd come for healing would go and sleep together in this uh, in this room and hope and call in healing dreams from the God. And there are thousands of carved, you know, what are called stelae, like carved tributes to the God for healing. And Asclepian temples, you know, were all over the Mediterranean basin. There were over 900 Esculapian temples around the, the Mediterranean basin. And the reason that 
they disappeared was because Christianity suppressed it. Because under the Christ cult, only Christ could be the healer. And Christ does all the same things that Asclepius did, raise people from the dead, cure the blind, like all, you know. So, so this is, you know, something that actually, you know, the, the medical tradition of diagnosis and prognosis that, you know, we're very familiar with actually had this other component that was born with it and that lived along with it for, uh, for a millennium, right? Before it was subjugated um, and, you know, and has had and lived on in other kinds of practices that, you know, have been, uh, you know, traditional medicines or, you know, traditional healing practices or, or spiritual healing practices. I mean, that they live on in the margins, you know, but, but there's no reason. And that's really the point of my book. There's no reason for medicine to have cast off all of these other possibilities, except for marketing. I mean, that- They kept the really, rod of Asclepius. <laughs> that's, well, that's not, so yes, thank you. The rod of Asclepius. Okay, so nobody knows what it is, right? It's on, so like, uh, so the cover of my book is like this, got oh. the little rod, I see the little rod. And the, so that's the punchline of my book, you see, is that- um, and uh, then, This like, wasn't even rehearsed. I just, <laughs> this is totally organic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, it's like this thing. So that's my whole thing is Escalepius is hiding in plain sight. Uh, it's on every EMS truck. It's yeah, on all yeah, of the yeah. hospitals. And no, nobody knows what it means. And nobody knows who Escalepius was. Right. And so like my book is like I this punchline. It's like I use it. It's on the cover of the book. It's a section break for like between. So you see it all the way through the oh. book. And then on page 150, it is revealed to you. Like, what is this thing that you have been seeing and not paying attention to for the last 150 pages? And it actually is important. And, you know, and it's this way that like, why, and why does medicine keep flashing the rod of Asclepius and not pay any attention to it? I mean, you know, medical students, they have to say the Hippocratic Oath. Okay, so we got that. But, but what about, you know, okay, maybe you wear a little tie pin or something. I don't know. But you know, it's like, uh, I mean, to me, and like to go back to your question about bifurcations, like that's a bifurcation, mm -hmm. Hippocratic versus Escalopian, right? Mm -hmm. That is a fundamental split. And there's no reason for them to be opposed. They were not opposed. They co mm -hmm. they coexisted. That's the I think that's the key that I was hoping you you were gonna get to is that they're not opposed and, no. and knowing one thing does not preclude the importance of something else. Exactly. And exactly. Uh, yeah, man, learning to heal. Learning to heal. I mean, it's what we do, whether we know it or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that's the thing. But, you know, the nice thing about, you know, being human is that we have the capacity to learn to learn. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, you know, all animals learn in some sense. But we have this other capacity to be aware of the fact that we're learning and to learn in new ways. And, um, you know, so that's what, you know, on learning to heal or what medicine doesn't know, you know, that's what I'm trying to promote. That's what I'm a, a fanboy of. Uh, yeah. Well, listen, Ed, um, I've learned a lot uh, chatting with you. I've learned a couple of new words. That's always good. <laughs> um, and, uh, and it's been, it's been, yeah, insightful. And, uh, 
a really enjoyable chat about something that it is really big and I feel like we're limited by an hour maybe here but but um I think you've done a great job in sort of um hammering home some of the main points and if you want to know more you got to get the book and look at the, <laughs> the rod of Asclepius <laughs> exactly bye on yeah. learning to heal what medicine doesn't know and you'll yeah. learn all about the rod of Asclepius among and others more. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and uh, thanks so much for sharing your insight. Uh, your, oh, my pleasure. Your, Thank your experience. you. Yeah, and I, I look forward to reading the book. I'll have to, I'll have to get the book and, and learn about the Rod of Asclepius. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right, my man. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Okay, take care.